will, we're going to be in Luke chapter 2 this morning. Uh, It'll be different than when we were in Luke chapter 2 at the beginning of our working through Luke. Uh, But we'll be in Luke chapter 2, so head that way. Uh, The last two weeks we have looked at how the advent, the coming of Christ, has uh, brought hope and peace into our lives. And this week we are learning about joy. Uh, And like uh, last week, we're going to just read this passage, jump right into it, and, and, and start explaining it and getting to know it. So uh, follow along, beginning in Luke 2, and we're going to begin in verse 8 and go to 14. And it's going to sound redundant because you, you heard Tony read it just a little bit ago. So beginning in verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all, pe- all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on the earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray again. Mighty God, by, by the power of the Holy Spirit, at this moment we have one request. Please minister your word to our hearts this morning. May your word lead us into great joy because, you, uh, because in you we have a God who has gone to great lengths to display your love for us. And in you we have a Savior who has come in human flesh to actually save your people, the church, to save us from our sins, Lord. And we ask this in the name of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So many years ago I read a, a story about a conference. It was a news report. And it took place in a Presbyterian church up in Omaha, Nebraska, which is the good life, if I remember right. Is that Nebraska or is it, they changed it recently. I can't remember what it is. Anyway, uh, it was many years ago. And at one point, uh, they gave everyone in attendance a single balloon and it was filled with helium. And they instructed them during the service that at some point when you feel joy in the Lord, just joy in the Lord, simply that much, just let go of this balloon and let it lift up to the, to the, to the, what do you call that? The roof, right? Uh, And the story, as they're explaining it, the part of it that really kind of cracked me up was uh, they went on to explain that because we're Presbyterian, uh, we can't do things like, like shout out hallelujah or praise the Lord or things like that. And so this is the way we're going to express our, our overwhelming joy in the Lord, right? So for the record, we're not that sort of Presbyterians. If you want to shout hallelujah, amen, uh, or praise the Lord, just go ahead and do it. That's fine. Uh, if, you, if you get too rambunctious and I can't focus, I'll stop you, but, but that'll take a while. So do your best. Uh, anyway, if nothing else, at least I'll know you haven't fallen asleep at that point. So anyway, at, at this conference, the really kind of shocking thing that went on was, was, was this. Um, everyone held this balloon and they waited for that moment to release it. And the service went on. And every so often, as you can imagine, balloons start going up, maybe a few at a time at certain points. And the truly shocking part, though, was that by the end of it, a third of the people were still holding their balloon. 
You understand what that means? That, that, I mean, you understand this, that more than any other people on the planet, Christians ought to experience real joy. And, and so the idea that a third of people who are professing Christians could go through a worship service and feel no joy towards God at any moment during that is, is absolutely heartbreaking. It's lacking joy, right? So I know this time of year we often think about joy. You have these different concepts of things that you might imagine. We, we sing about joy. Maybe you look forward to baking cookies or relaxing by, with family by the, by the fire. But it's also very easy to find ourselves lacking joy in very significant ways. It's, it's easy at this time of year for people to find themselves depressed, to find themselves frustrated on long car rides with grumpy children or with grumpy parents up in the front, uh, or, or memories of loved ones that have died and, and, and just bring about sadness at that time, or maybe just missing friends and family who are distant, distant either emotionally or, or physically, and there's probably more of you experiencing that this year with less travel being available. And you know, we, we think we can hide our feelings, just smile real big, no one will know, and, and the truth is we're just not very good at hiding our feelings. We're not. Did you know there is actual, an actual word for how our face communicates our, our feelings? The word is countenance. I know you know this word if you've been coming for very long because one of our benedictions includes that word. Numbers 6, 24 through 26 says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That's his, his face and expression, Right? That, that right there, that uh, benediction is a spoken blessing, asking that God would look on us with joy. And so while our faces can hide feelings, they're often not very good at actually doing so. The Texan Dudley Hall once made this statement. He said, countenance is a press conference that your face calls to give the state of the union of your soul. It just does. Proverbs fifteen thirteen says, a glad heart makes a cheerful face. Our, our faces, whether we like it or not, we can hide them for a little while, but eventually they're basically like a dog's tail, right? That there's joy they can't help but wag. Not your face, the dog's tail. Um, and so think a moment though. Think about the facial expressions that you have seen recently this year. The faces you've seen in person, maybe just the eyes, but whatever you could see. The faces you've seen on Zoom, Maybe even the face that you've seen in the mirror week after week after week. Have you seen joy, real, genuine joy? Now, it's fitting here to remind ourselves that joy is not the same thing as happiness. Happiness is a feeling that is based on your situation, and as your situation changes, so does the happiness come and go. But you need not have happiness to experience joy in our passage, the angels didn't announce good news of great happiness either, did they? They announced great news of, of great, or good news of great joy. They, they come to announce that, joy. Joy, which is a gift of God and a fruit of the Spirit, which transcends our situations. So now what I want you to see in our text today is that when, when heaven meets earth, the proper response is joy. When we realize that Christ has come to dwell among man, the proper response is joy. Now, I, I don't intend to shame you this morning as you think back on your life and maybe you think, oh, I haven't been joyful. Shame is not the intention here by any means. Rather, my hope is that, that this might encourage you to engage in the battle for joy. 
You see, we experience on a daily basis wave after wave after wave of interactions and, and situations, uh, many of those that are going to rob you or seek to rob you of your joy. And the solution is not to simply stop the waves, right? Or to make sure they're all wonderful things that come out at us. That's, that's an impossibility. But the, the solution is to seek refuge in the one who can absolutely overcome the waves. In John 16, Jesus tells us, in this world we will experience tribulation. But Jesus also says, I have overcome the world. You understand that? You will experience frustration, persecution, stress, suffering, pain, maybe bouts with depression, but Jesus has overcome that. And I know some of you realists, right, are are probably thinking, sure, Jesus has overcome that, but But I haven't overcome life's tribulations. And that's kind of the point. John Piper, speaking towards this, says, The fight for joy is not a struggle to carry a burden, but a struggle to let a burden be carried for us. The life of joy in God is not a burdened life. It is an unburdened life because we trust God with the burdens of our life. You hear that? The key to joy is trusting in God. Let's look at our passage now. Um, at the time that this scripture was written, the Jewish people are under the, the rule of the Roman Empire, right? It's not a place they want to be. It's a place that they find themselves in, though. And Caesar Augustus puts out this decree, right? This official order, and he's saying, uh, we're going to have, everyone must be registered. What it is is a census. Everything's being counted. It's for tax purposes and things of that nature, Uh, We do the same thing in the United States. Just this year, we had our our census, uh, the 2020 census. Uh, I believe we had it. It didn't get canceled, did it? Anyway, um, and and you know what it is, right? So now when you drive into a town, it's the reason you can have that sign that says, oh, there's 506 people who live here, or whatever it might be. Uh, However, in their time, they did it a little different. They didn't just go out and count everyone where they were. They were requiring people, you go back to the town that you are from, return to that place. And and you see, Mary's not from Bethlehem, but but Joseph is. Uh, And since since they were engaged to be married, she went with them back to his town, which is no big deal until you remember this, that that it's written in the prophets, right, about this town. Micah 5.2 says this, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancients of days. At the birth of Jesus, it's been 700 years since Micah wrote that prophecy. And and the prophecy is, is crazy because Bethlehem is this tiny town of no real significance. You know, Kansas is, is full of Bethlehems. It really is. I'd It'd be like predicting, you know what, the Savior's going to come from Paola, Kansas. And everyone hears that and thinks, where, what, what is that? Why? Um, You know, and it's one of those things that I just absolutely love about this, though, is that there are so many better ways, more direct ways to accomplish the fulfillment of this prophecy in in Micah, right? For instance, when the angel Gabriel comes to visit Mary, he could have just said simply, and by the way, when it's time to have your baby, go to Bethlehem. Solution right there, right? Or he could have told Joseph the same thing. Take Mary back home to, to have this child. Or, or he could have just teleported him back there, right, you know, instantly. Or if he really wanted to make this whole thing very easy and, and fulfill this prophecy, God could have just predicted or just selected some girl who already lives in Bethlehem to begin with. 
perfectly solved. And instead, what, what God does is he shows us what, what Proverbs 21.1 looks like in redemptive history. And I'll remind you, Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of a Lord. He turns it wherever he will. You see, the, to fulfill the prophecy in Micah, God turns the heart of the highest authority in the empire, right? To call for a census that will result in Mary and Joseph returning to Bethlehem. That's how he does it. In fact, as this whole story goes on, as, as, as the birth of Jesus begins to unfold, almost every step is, is completely opposite the way we would do that. In fact, you really organize structured people. It must drive you nuts when you see the way all this works out because there's easier ways. I mean, first, God sends a Messiah who is a fragile, weak baby. That's interesting, isn't it? God created the first man, Adam, and he made him a man, or at least not a baby. Eve also is not created as a, a baby, but as a woman. And if I'm sending a savior, he, he's going to be an adult and he's going to be powerful. He, he, he's going to look like Russell Crowe in 300, you know, someone who can, can live out there on his own and be just fine. And, and yet here when God sends a king, when Jesus comes to dwell among us, he starts as a zygote in the womb of Mary. He experiences the humility of human birth. The very person whom the universe was created through laid in his mother's arms and she, as she nursed him. He had his nasty diapers changed helplessly. I mean, let, let the wonder of, of all those little details of humanity sink in for a moment. That's the way God comes to dwell among his people. And then consider the way the royal birth is announced to the world. Now, if it's me, again, I'm thinking 2020, we can get the word out real quick, right? We're going to broadcast it over things. We're going to put it on Instagram and TikTok. Everyone's going to know. We're going to do it kind of like the British do their babies, right? The royalty. They have a child and the whole world knows about this child by the time the sun sets that same day. Uh, at the very least, you, you'd expect then that these angels in that time are going to go to the VIPs of the world, or at least the region, the most important people to announce this is the birth of the king, the birth of Christ. But that's not the way God does it. Our Savior is born in a lowly stable in the, the lame town of Bethlehem. And who is the birth announced to? Look at verse 8. To shepherds. Shepherds are far from the elite of society. You've probably heard this many times in your life at this point. In fact, the, the Jewish author Jeremiah, not the prophet Jeremiah, said this. He said, there is no more disreputable occupation than that of a shepherd not a real favorable statement about your profession. Um, furthermore, they are cut off from the rest of society. They spend most of their time living among stinky sheep out in the fields by themselves. Basically, if you want to get the news out about the birth of the Savior, the coming of the King, of, of the Messiah, if you want to get this out, the last people on the planet at this point that you want to enlist are the shepherds. It, it would be on par with with hiring my mom to run your social media. She doesn't even know what, what Instagram is. It's, it's just not going to get the message out in, in any effective way, right? And, and yet God does just that. And so imagine if you can, here are these shepherds. They're out in the darkness and they're tending sheep. It's, it's, it's late at night. The sheep are down. They're probably telling stories from the day or old stories that they've heard a hundred times to each other. And then suddenly there's just this bam. And, and there's this bright, glowing angel there. 
I mean, can you imagine that? You, you ever been startled in the middle of night by someone and, and you're, you're just out of nowhere and it just terrifies you? When I was in the, somewhere around the fourth grade, I was asleep. It's 2 a.m. in the night, maybe somewhere around there. And, and suddenly my bedroom door just swings open and there is a man standing there. I can tell because of the nightlight in the hall is creating the silhouette of him. And he's got something big in his hands and he just stands there saying nothing. And I can remember just panicking at that moment and, and shouting something like, who are you? What do you want? Like, I don't know what crazy stuff I must have said, but just terrified and the man didn't respond one bit nothing and he just stepped for me towards me and walked towards me until he got to the edge of my bed and 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 at this point I could see oh it's my older brother and he's got all of his sheets in his hands for some reason and he just throws the sheets and his comforter down and without saying a word he just turns and and walks about out of there and I spent the rest of the night uh wondering if that's the reason I peed my bed or just because I did uh terrified, wondering, is he going to come back again? I didn't know what was going on, but I was afraid to leave my room and and find out. And the next morning, I go and ask him about him. He had zero memory of doing this. He'd gotten up, slept, walked, dropped his sheets off, went back, and just slept on his mattress the rest of the night. Um, Anyway, it was so incredibly scary for my brother to show up in the middle of the night like that. And at least I had the relief at some point of saying, oh, that's just Greggy. It's okay, I think. He's a little weird, but it's, it's okay, I think. But the shepherds, they don't get that. There's nothing that, like, takes away that, that, that shock, right? It's just this, this boom and this bright light and this terrifying creature that's there. And, and that's what the shepherds are feeling there in verse 8 when they say that they were filled with great fear. We're like, yeah, of course they were. In fact, this is exactly the interaction of everyone in Scripture that ever interacts with angels, Right? You think of Mary and, and Joseph and Zechariah in the temple and the two Marys at the empty tomb later on. Every single one of them are absolutely petrified and the, and the text will tell us in those, those situations all about that. And this tells us something that, that the Lord's angels must be downright terrifying. And I don't know if we always get that because we, we, you might want to like picture, you know, the, the fat little cherubs at Valentine's or, or, or the way they're always perceived in things, in pop culture, right? These sweet flying women with harps and things of that nature. Angels in the scripture, though, are always explained with male pronouns, are always explained as these, these powerful creatures. Picture something more like a, a winged warrior in most instances. And so here's that angel in that moment as, as they've all surely peed their pants and, and the angel tells them, you know, fear not. Sh- sure, okay. I mean, I can't imagine that was a real powerful thing at that moment. But then in verse 10, the angel says, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And then the angels continue. The angel continues, For unto you is born in this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And they knew what that meant. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Now, do you know what a manger is? Uh, Honestly, most of my life, even long before I was a Christian believer, I would go to Christmas Eve and hear this story at my grandma's church. And I always imagined the manger is the building they're in. That's what I pictured. So anyone else think that? This, This is a safe place. You'll get mocked, but that's it. I'm really the only person who ever thought that for manger. All right, you're all smarter than me. Anyway, 
For those of you that were just afraid to raise your hand, a manger is this, this long box that's filled with hay or alfalfa uh, for a horse, a donkey. It's a bowl for these big animals to eat out of. And so when the angel's saying, you know, go find the king, he's in a manger, I, I, I can only imagine that the, the shepherds are probably wanting to ask each other, did, did he just say manger? You know, because that's not a normal thing. That's weird. It's, it's like if you went to see the Sardos who had their baby recently and, and they said, hey, you want to see baby Clara? She's in the dog's bowl. You, did she just say dog's bowl? Like that's not normal. And it's just kind of messed up. And, and so, so here's Jesus, the, the savior of the world, the king. The whole world is created through him. And he's born in this pathetic town of Bethlehem to poor parents. He's, his birth is announced by these lowly shepherds. He's stuck into a, you know, a big feeding bowl for an animal. And, and you begin to wonder, why all this poverty? Well, this, is not, this is not kingly stuff. You see, it shows us that salvation is by grace alone. It shows us that the love of God comes to us freely. It shows us, in fact, that the rich have no advantage in the kingdom of God. Now, there is no shame in having wealth. If God has gifted you with wealth, that's a blessing. Be grateful, steward it well, but, but also know that for what you really need in life, what you really need, it, it, it can't be purchased by the wealth that we have. But the forgiveness of your sin can be had. It is a free gift. It is a gift that comes through the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ. And so then what does all this have to do with joy? Um, you see, the response to religion, most religions in the world, is fear and, and guilt. There's this sense that you must do something to earn your salvation. Or, or if you've received salvation, now the rest of your life is this huge debt like you got from a, you know, a medical bill or something. And you're just going to spend the rest of your life trying to pay it off and never coming up with it. But in Christianity, we, we don't pay God back. Grace is a free gift. And the proper response to a free gift is the joy our hearts. Joy for what it is. Our, our, our joy is the message of 1 Peter 1.8, which says this, though you do not see, now see him, you believe in him, you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. You, you see, joy is the disposition of gladness at the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But too often we focus on what God hasn't done or what we wish God would do. In Matthew 4.16, there's a, another prophecy is, is spoken of, and this one originates in the book of Isaiah, and it reads this. It says this, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Dawned, you know, that's when the light first starts showing up in the morning. Now, the dawning of, of light for most of us in this electrical age, uh, we moderns, we just don't get it. In fact, usually... Uh, when the sun's coming up, right, there's that feeling of like, oh no, please, not yet. Uh, someone block that out. Whatever we can do, I, I want to keep sleeping. And, and living with electricity, we, we don't even understand why the dawn is, is a joy in that sense. Now, there, there was only one moment in my life that I can say I really understood this, this love or this hope that was found in the dawn. And that's uh, my senior year of high school. I went out on a hike in the Sam Houston National Forest. Uh, it's in Texas, so it's big. You know that. Uh, 163,000 acres of dense forest. That's 250 square miles, to put it in terms we actually use. 
So when the sun uh, began to set and I'm out on this hike, the weirdest things happen. Those of you who have hiked may have experienced this. Suddenly the, the path that's real obvious in front of you just disappears. It's, you can't see it. It makes... Explaining it doesn't make sense to me, but it just disappears. You can't find it in the dark. And, and so next thing I know, I find myself absolutely lost, no idea where to go. It was uh, terrifying, to say the least. I, I ended up finding a small clearing in the ground, on the ground in, in one section of the woods and just thought, I will stay here because it's like four feet before the woods show up again. Uh, and I laid down in the ground, and I just prayed you know, for protection because I'm thinking coyotes, and I'm thinking copperheads, and whatever else might eat me out there. Uh, I didn't sleep a lick. I laid there on the ground uh, the entire night. And, and the next morning, as dawn began to break, as that little first bit of light, it was the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Remember, this is pre-phones. I didn't have a watch. I didn't even know what time it was. And so the moment that, that light began to replace the darkness, I was filled with joy like never before because this light was a rescue. This light was a, a hope that, okay, I've actually survived this. Um, which sounds dramatic now, but at the time, not so much. Uh, the birth of Christ is the dawning of salvation. It, it is light coming into the world, right? Light that can't come from anywhere else. No, no electricity can come into this understanding. It's, it's the reason for us to rejoice with the angels is because here comes hope, here comes salvation in the person of Christ. And as we've, we've seen these past two weeks in Christ. As Christ comes, so does hope and, and peace. And so does genuine joy. Which is why as Christians, we should absolutely experience joy in abundance. And yet that's not always true. And so I do want to ask you this morning, what is it that hinders your joy? Or what is it that hinders your joy from being greater, more constant, more expressive maybe? I mean, is it, is it too much focus on your circumstances in life? Is it overuse of technology or, or screens? Is it comparing yourself to others? Is it, is it a life that's, that's built with no margins, no, no time, just busy, 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 doing, doing, doing? Or is it relational struggles or financial struggles or uncertainty of the future? I mean, what is it? And the, and the truth is, it's, it's all of those things. And, and, and all of those things point to something bigger, in fact. If, if you've tuned me out, I, I do want you to tune back in here. I'd prefer you never tune out, but do tune back in because I want you to hear this. We lose joy when we take our eyes, our focus off God, off the gospel, off the salvation we have in Christ, off our eternal life in his kingdom and the security that we have in Jesus. You lose joy when your focus is off Jesus. In one place, our focus wrongly wanders to is, is sin, and you know this, but perhaps it is a besetting sin today that is stealing your joy. This, this Advent season, it might be a time that you need to, like David in Psalm 51, pray pray a prayer, right? It's a response uh, that he's praying there in Psalm 51. It's this response to Bathsheba and all the sin that he committed to her and her family and against God ultimately. And in verse 12, David prays there, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Our culture has this messed up idea that there is joy in sin. 
And while there is certainly pleasure in sin, otherwise it wouldn't tempt us, right? There is pleasure to be had in sin, but there is not joy, not real joy. David was very aware of the joy that his sin had taken from him. Now, think of your life right now. Are you lacking joy because of some giant sin in your life or maybe some habitual sin that seems to be dragging on and on uh, and, and, and you're not able to kick uh, or get rid of in any way. You see, I'll tell you a story. Um, years ago, there was a, a mother who told me that she noticed her, her young child, very young child, uh, wasn't acting right. And uh, so she asked him, hey, what's the matter? Simple question, little boy. And he responded, his response was this, nothing. I'm just guilty. And it was this weird honesty from just this little boy in this moment, right? If, if you let your guard down, would, would you respond in a way like that? Why, why are you so downhearted? Nothing. I'm just guilty. Just the weight of that sin on, on your life. So let me remind you, if your faith is in Christ, even that sin that weighs down of you on you is forgiven. So yes, repent and wholeheartedly ask the Lord to restore the joy of your salvation, to restore your joy in Christ. Others, others of us are lacking joy today because the stresses of life ha have just overshadowed the reality of our salvation. So listen, the, the absolute truth that your sins are forgiven should trump everything else in your life. Right? That's, that's the source of joy is when we got that understanding. Are you, are you struggling to get along with someone? Are you worried you might lose your job in the future? Are, is, is parenting wearing you out? Did, did something costly break in your, your life that needs to be replaced and you're worried about how to do it? Diagnosed with some medical issue that just stresses you to no end? Is, if your life is stressful right now, remind yourself that in Jesus you are a child of God and that you are loved by your heavenly Father. And you got to know this. you you got to know that the entire world, everything that we wanted to go, the way we wanted to go, the whole world could crumble around us. Everything go wrong and your salvation would remain solidly intact. The greatest thing you need is already met in Christ if your faith is in Him. Now here's a, a mental tool that might help. When you are in the midst of frustration, right? You're wanting to yell at people or you're wanting to cry. You're so frustrated. You know, try saying something along the lines of, you know, Jesus loves me and saved me from my sin from all of eternity. I mean, see if you can say that and still be grumpy and hopeless, right? Keep saying that. Keep reminding yourself that. There, there is genuine joy to be had in that reality. So a while back, I, I read something by Gary Thomas. This is short, but, uh, and it spoke about the, the list. This time of year, there's all these lists, right? The 12 best gifts to get your wife, that kind of, kind of things. And his point was that really the absolute best give, gift you can give your spouse or your kids um, is a heart that overflows with joy. And this is a quote from him. He says, Your kids won't be led closer to the Lord, and your spouse won't refall in love with God by getting them a new video game or outfit. Their heart won't be kick-started when you find just the right decoration to put above the fireplace. Those are all fun things to do, but the first thing to give our families and to decorate our souls with is joy. 
Without it, Charles Spurgeon said, we lose the most influential aspect of life that we have. This is Spurgeon again. He says, if unbelievers could but even guess what are the secret joys of believers, they would give their eyes to share, share them with us. We have troubles and we admit it. We, we expect to have them, but we also have joys in abundance. So I want to leave you with just one question today. And I, I want you to think about this question, but I also want you to discuss this with, with others. Car ride home, over lunch, whatever situation you are. And yes, spiritualize this question. Uh, and it's this. What will most serve our family's joy this year? Or, or what will most serve my joy this year if you find yourself not in a family's context? Maybe you'll want to consider even a smaller time frame as you answer this to get your head around it. What will serve our family's joy today? Or what will serve our family's joy this week? Because if, if you can answer that question, right, what will serve our family's joy, then, then you can begin to actually prioritize your days, your weeks, your schedule around these things that we know will really bring us joy. And I'm willing to bet that that answer to that question is going to take you somewhere back to Christ. And so church, may we find abundance of joy as we look ever and always to our Savior who is the source, the sole source of our joy in life and death. Let us pray. Father, we want joy. Who doesn't? It's just so hard to keep our focus on you. So we ask, we, we pray, Lord, we ask that, that you would draw our hearts away from disappointments, true disappointments, and that you draw them away so that we might rejoice in all the blessings that we have in you. Father, as we celebrate the birth of Christ, help us to remember that it has accomplished for us an eternity where there will be no sorrow, no tears, no fears, but there will be you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, may our countenance be lifted at the thought of you and all the blessings that you have given us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.